this morning are found once again in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. For the sake of context, I'll begin reading at verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, giving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Please pray with me one more time. Father, we ask for Your help again, especially as we approach Your Word, because our confidence is in Your Word. And we know the reality of our hearts, how even after being born again, we're still resistant truth. Lord, we're, 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 we're still blind to areas of sin. Lord, we're still weak often in our doctrine. Lord, it, even after years of following you, Lord, if we, we just feel so weak as Christians. But we know where strengthening comes from. We know what produces spiritual maturity. And that's your word. And so we also pray that you would cause your word to have its perfect effect in us. That all of us would grow up into Christ likeness. Help us to understand rightly what your word says here. And and also how then to live it out appropriately. Lord, we don't want to just be a church of knowledgeable Christians who are knowledgeable of doctrine, who are knowledgeable about what Your Word says. But Lord, we want to be a a church of faithful Christians. So guide us into discernment to know how we should particularly apply this passage as we live our lives day to day. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the last few weeks we've been examining... uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we've been in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul has been explaining to the believers in that church how to live in light of their new identity in Christ. I think this is one of the most helpful chapters in all of Scripture for explaining how a new believer should live in light of the transformation that's taken in their heart. Because it's very simple and very clear. Paul already explained what a Christian is supposed to stop doing or to put off. And then he goes on to explain in verse 12 what they're supposed to put on or start doing. And then in verses 15 through 17, Paul gives three commands to believers that all center around our relationships with one another. 
And then after each command that he gives, this is really remarkable, he calls them to give thanks. Three times in three verses, he tells them to give thanks. And therefore, in the outline in your bulletins, I've actually included living in thanks as a fourth point in this outline. Let's look at, first of all, on the first point, live in Christ's peace. In verse 15, Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, as all of you know, peace just simply means a lack of hostility, a lack of tension or trouble in a person's life. Similar to when Jesus calmed the storm when he was with his disciples, and he simply said, Peace! Be still. And that that storm turned into just a placid lake. It's the peace of Isaiah 26.3. Where the prophet says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And such peace that the Lord provides is a peace that actually surpasses our understanding. Philippians 4.7 the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, Paul ties this peace to Christ. It is the peace of Christ. That is, it is the peace that Christ possesses. The very peace that governed Christ's life as he walked in obedience to the Father, despite being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the peace that governed all his thinking, all his activities, is the same peace that he imparts to every one of his disciples. Notice this. John fourteen seven. Jesus told his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Then chapter sixteen thirty three he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so the peace that Christ gives is a peace that believers can have as they cling to God in confidence that He is sovereign over all things and nothing's going to afflict them that He doesn't purpose for their good. So it's a gift and in here we see it's a, it's a gift that he particularly came to give to men. And there's both a horizontal and a vertical aspect to this peace of Christ. Christ brings about peace between God and men. And he brings, brings about peace between men and men. Christ brought about the peace between men and God through his suffering upon the cross bearing the full weight of God's wrath that they deserved and imparting to men his perfect righteousness. Remember, this is what Paul spoke to in chapter 1, verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He brought about peace between God and men. And this vertical peace that God brought about through Christ has a horizontal aspect as well. 
And we, this is primarily what Paul is speaking to in this verse because it says, to which indeed you were called in one body. He ties this peace into functioning as a body of believers. So this, this being at peace with one another really is a living out of Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul said, here there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So Christ has broken down every barrier. He's broken down every external standard of identification that would normally put men at odds with one another, making them enemies of one another or threats to one another. And moreover, as Christians, we're no longer isolated individuals trying to work out our own individual salvation. But in fact, now we've been made part of the body of Christ. And so not, yes, we do pursue our own sanctification as we pursue the sanctification of others. We're no longer just individuals, but we're part of a body. We're members of one another, members of the body of Christ. That is, we work together as a a unit, not against one another, but for one another. So we're at peace. He's brought about peace. Paul actually makes a really similar statement in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He words it differently. But it brings together both this vertical and horizontal aspects of the peace that Christ brings. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. If a person is in Christ, they no longer have any enemies within the body of Christ. Because they're all important and all are functioning for the same goal, to exalt and glorify God. Because the death of Christ is the only means whereby a person can be reconciled to God, all Christians have received this peace, and they've all received it in the same way. It's not through something they did. It's not because they were smarter or harder working. They've all received peace the very same way, through faith in what Christ accomplished. They're all on the same level. Because they're all equally sinners against the Most High God. And they've all been equally saved through the perfect work of Christ. And so now we're to let that peace rule in our hearts. That that word rule means to function as a, as a judge or an umpire or referee. We actually came across it in Colossians 2.19 when Paul said, Let no one disqualify you. That is, let no one act as your judge or your umpire, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Don't let anybody judge you based upon their own external standards of righteousness that they've created, clinging to themselves rather than clinging to Christ, where is the only way a person gets spiritual growth. So in chapter 2, Paul was making clear that 
False teachers are not our judges. They're not our rulers. They don't create the standards of righteousness. They don't decide what's good and bad, right and wrong. Again, they, they suggested that righteousness was based upon a, a person's performance to various laws. Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. And, this, and because of this, there would be some good people who followed those rules and there would be some bad people who didn't follow those rules. And we need to cling to the good people and avoid the bad people that don't follow their rules that they created. And in doing so, they inherently create hostility. Because those people who aren't following the rules, they're a danger to you. They're a threat to you. Christ has broken all that down. Paul is saying those teachers aren't your judge, your umpire, ruler. They don't dictate what is true and false. Christ does. And Christ has revealed to you how to live in his word. When a person realizes that, that their worth, their eternal worth, their value, their significance, their identity is not bound in the various pursuits of this world, but it's only bound up in what Christ has accomplished. When a person realizes that, there's no longer hostility between other people. See, people are no longer a threat to you. They're no longer beneath you or above you. If they're in Christ, they're fellow laborers with you, fellow slaves of Christ. They're, they're members of the same body. They have the same merit, the same worth, the same significance, whether they're three years old or whether they're 100 years old, whether they're a Ph.D. or whether they struggled to get out of elementary school, whether they can run a, a, a 10 second 100 meter dash or whether they're disabled, their significance is found in Christ, not in anything that they've accomplished. And therefore, when they when a person recognizes that. There is no hierarchy in the church. We're all fellow laborers and we should we should have as equal care for any every other member of the body of Christ as we do for ourselves. Christ's body shouldn't look like it's possessed by some autoimmune disease with each member attacking another member. On October 21st, 1805, just before the, the famous Battle of Trafalgar, Admiral Horatio Nelson heard that there was a conflict between one of his other admirals and a captain. And when he was enlightened of this personal conflict, he invited them both to dinner on his ship. And when he had them together... He placed their hands together and then he pointed to the enemy's ships and he said, yonder, gentlemen, is the enemy. The enemy's out there. It's not here on the ship. And it was enough. Their disagreements were forgotten and they were able to achieve victory. So letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts means that you love one another. It also means that you're going to be faithful to confront one another, to teach one another, to admonish one another, as we'll see in a second. 
When the peace of Christ is ruling our relationships, teaching and admonishing is going to be normative. Because peaceful relationships are defined by warnings and instruction. Just think about a healthy family. The healthiest families are where parents give very clear instructions of what they're, what's expected of their children and very clear consequences when those instructions aren't followed. There should be a constant element of teaching and bearing with and a constant element of warning. And when that happens, there's peace because there's clarity and there's unity. And it leads to harmony within a home. And the same is true of the church. And that's what Paul brings up next when he tells us to live in Christ's word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, as you know, the word of Christ just simply refers to the scriptures, the word of God. It's God's truth that he has revealed to us. And that is what should dwell richly in our hearts. That that word dwell just simply means to to live in, to make its home in. You dwell in your homes. Likewise, the word of Christ should find its home in your heart. And it should begin to flavor your thinking and your priorities. But notice also the adjective that's there. Or adverb, to dwell richly. It's the word plusios, where we get the word wealth. It means abundantly. So the idea is that the word of God is to be packed into your heart. So just like a hoarder packs its home, his home full of stuff, because he doesn't want to get rid of anything. Likewise, the word of God should be packed into your heart, so packed into your heart, it's overflowing. It's obvious where you spent time in the morning and where you spent time in the evening and what you do during your breaks. Like Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, prick him anywhere and you will see that his blood is bibbling. Spurgeon's point was Bunyan just exudes scripture. He can't help but quote scripture. It is obviously affecting the way that he thinks and how he communicates. And Paul is saying that's what should define every Christian Not just the the super Puritans, but every believer in Christ should have the word of God packed into their heart, dwelling abundantly in the heart. And we can pack our hearts full of scripture in many different ways. Obviously, through reading the Bible. Through studying the Bible, both in in depth and reading it in breadth, we can listen to lectures or sermons, we can read theology books. I mean, honestly, at no other period in history have Christians had so many good, great, excellent biblical resources at their fingertips. I mean, you can read almost anything the Puritans have wrote or the church fathers because it's all online. I mean, we have all different kinds of versions and translations of the Bible to give clarity into what the Word of God means and and shares, explains. And so you would expect that 21st century Americans would be the most Bible-saturated people in all of history. But we're not. Which, of course, begs the question, why? 
why is it that it seems that other period, now we, we didn't live 100, 200, 300 years ago, but why does it seem that the people of those, those, that time period, Christians of that time period, were more biblically enriched than we are? When we have so many more resources, and because of technology, frankly, so much more time to read the Bible and to study it. I think the, the simple answer is that we just fill our time rather than with the Word of God. We fill it with entertainment, television, watching dog videos on the Internet, other sorts of television shows. I mean, people have time to watch their favorite television show week after week. But I'm surprised that, that, that how many people, the thought of spending 15 minutes a day reading the Bible just seems overwhelming to them. They're too busy. But they're not too busy to watch the Seahawks tonight. They have no problem feeding themselves three times a day on physical food. But to feed themselves with spiritual food is just too much of a sacrifice. Despite the fact that they know man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If the word of God were, was to dwell in us richly, abundantly, there wouldn't be any room for junk food. And that's the point. This is what should fill our thinking. This is what should fill our, our thoughts. Not five or six different kinds of audiobooks or podcasts that are just about pop culture. But biblical truth. And particularly, the Bible itself. Let it hoard your heart. Again, just imagine a house being so packed full of stuff that if you just you open the door, just junk comes falling out. If we're obeying the Scripture, when we open our mouths, Scripture should just come tumbling out. So when you open your mouth, what, what does come out? Movie lines? Political slogans? TV commercials? Top 40 music lyrics? And as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. By what a person talks about, it shows what really is important to them. And Paul tells us that the word of Christ dwelling richly in believers is going to be manifested three different ways. Through teaching, through admonishing, and through singing. And we know what it means to teach. Right? It just means to instruct a person. All right, here, of course, it would mean instructing a person in what the Bible teaches, biblical doctrines, theology, application of Scripture. And to admonish, it simply means to warn or to rebuke another person, to, to challenge another person so that they might be more faithful. And we actually came across both terms in Colossians chapter 128, where Paul presented his philosophy of ministry, his priorities in ministry. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom very similar to what he says here. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
So Paul says, that's what I do. That's also what you should do. Right? This is how Paul did his ministry. Remember when he was um, speaking to the Ephesian elders that one last time in Acts 20. He said that he did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable, teaching in public and from house to house. So he taught. And then in verse 31, he says, and that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul, in his ministry, prioritized teaching, instructing, what does the Bible say? And then warning, rebuking, challenging so that those people would live out the scriptures. Paul's saying, elders, that's your responsibility. That's your primary role to teach and to admonish. But notice here in Colossians 3, he's not limiting it just to the role of elders. He's saying, in fact, this is all of our responsibility. And it's all of our responsibility because that's what brings about maturity in Christ. And that's what all of our goals should be. Not just that we ourselves would grow up into Christ-likeness, but that we'd have equal concern that everyone else around us would grow up into Christ-likeness. Not just the members of our family, not just our wives or our husbands, but all of us would grow up into Christ-likeness. A healthy church should have relationships that are defined by everyone teaching one another and everyone admonishing one another. Now, I think a lot of people, if they were to hear that, that there's a lot of admonition that goes on in that church. Everybody's always admonishing one another. That would sound like a church most people wouldn't be interested in attending. I mean, a lot of us just kind of want our space. Don't, don't get in my kitchen. But Paul's saying, no, this is exactly what we need. Now, it's not done in a self-righteous, condescending attitude. Rather, it's done because we genuinely care about one another. It's done out of love, recognizing the mercy that we have received. We thereby extend mercy and encourage one another to live out what the Bible teaches. And this is what will naturally happen if the word of Christ is dwelling in our hearts. We're, 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 it's going to be hard not to teach. It's going to be hard not to admonish if our minds are filled with the Word of God because we're going to see when a brother or sister whom we love dearly is not walking in line with the Scriptures, we're going to be pained by it. We're going to be grieved by it. We're going to be concerned by it. Not because we look down upon them, but because we love them. If you saw one of your friends doing something that was dangerous, that's going to hurt them, that's going to lead to destruction in their workplace or in their families, if you truly loved them, you'd say something. And so if we have the Word of God dwelling richly in us, we will teach, we will admonish, because we love. And likewise, if it's because of the Word of God, then what we say is going to be done in all wisdom. What we say will actually be wise. It won't be just our casual opinions. We won't just be projecting our preferences. No, we'll be thinking about what is best for this person in light of what the Scripture says. Not in light of what I want, but in light of what Christ wants. The third effect will be singing. 
singing to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Psalms, just as you would know, it refers to those Old Testament texts, the book of Psalms. And these psalms were often put to to, uh, tunes so they could be easily remembered. Most of them were songs originally, not just poetry, but songs. Hymns refers to songs of praise. So songs that are particularly written out of adoration and uh, exaltation of God. They're songs that praise the person and work of God. And then spiritual songs are it, it's just general songs of a spiritual nature. So maybe not songs that are specifically praises of God, but they're just songs of spiritual value. And, and as you know, a one song could be both a psalm, a hymn, or a spiritual song. But these are various categories, and I think Paul lists them because he's saying all of these, because they're rooted in Scripture, because they're rooted in truth, have value. And they have great value because they remind us of what the Bible teaches. Right? Therefore, they're helpful in instructing and admonishing. See, songs are helpful because they help biblical truth to resonate in our hearts. You know how difficult it is sometimes to memorize Scripture. It seems like an academic exercise. But if you put a Scripture to a tune, it's almost memorized immediately. Like Most of us can memorize the lyrics of a song after hearing it just once or twice or three times. If you're one of my children, it's like one time and they've got it down. And so when we can put biblical truth to music, we can memorize that truth or that truth just is able to dwell in our hearts more easily. So songs are very useful tools when it comes to reminding ourselves and one another of biblical truth. And, and this is the very reason we sing so many songs in our worship services. And also why we're so picky about the songs that we sing. Because what matters most about worship music, as this verse implies, what matters most is what is being taught by them. What biblical truth, what theological doctrines are being communicated in this music. So our purpose in singing songs isn't actually to generate a certain kind of emotion. We don't pick songs in order to manipulate us to be in a a certain psychological state in order for us to just feel better about ourselves or about life or just to be more prepared to receive the Word of God. That's actually not the purpose. The purpose for the songs that we sing is quite simply to help us remember biblical truth. As we hear these songs and we remember these songs, then we can remember such biblical truths throughout the week. And we can thereby have means of recalling for others' benefit these same truths as well. We can recite lyrics to one another as a reminder to one another of what we know to be true. So again, the primary purpose of singing in a worship service is not psychological It's not to minister to our emotions or our souls. 
The primary purpose is not psychological, but pedagogical. That word means it's the study of teaching or how to teach. The goal is to teach. And so as you're listening to music, you need to be asking yourself, whether it's a worldly song or a, or a, a song you hear, a Christian song on the radio or a song you hear at church, you need to be asking yourself, what is this teaching? Because that, that's what's going to affect our hearts. It's going to affect our affections. It's going to direct us in what we value. And notice Paul says, this singing is to be done with thankfulness in our hearts to God. All right, again, thanksgiving is going to flow out of our hearts, and we'll, we'll come back to this. But first, I want to look at verse 17, where Paul exhorts us to live as Christ's representatives or to live in the name of Christ. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does it mean to do something in the name of Christ? Well, it means it's to perform a, an, a service as if being done for him, unto him, on behalf of him. To do something as if he himself had directed you to do it. And when an ambassador is sent to another country, that ambassador represents the country. They communicate in the name of that other country that they represent. Likewise, captains of sports teams decide uh, coin flips or sometimes even penalties on behalf of the team. They, in, they are in the name of the rest of the team. They represent the team. Likewise, an attorney functions in the name of their client. For instance, a person who has the power of eternity, of attorney, sorry, names uh, that person functions on behalf of another person. Their, their agent or attorney, in fact, a person with the power of attorney can act on behalf of another person in regard to legal matters or financial matters. They can even purchase or sell a home on behalf of another person. That that person functions in the name of another person. Likewise, to do something in the name of Christ means we speak, we speak and act as representatives of Him. And notice that Paul says, do everything in the name of Christ, including our words and actions. So everything we say Everything we do, we are to do as representatives of Christ to the world. So there is never a time when you do not function as a servant of Christ. We are not part-time Christians. We are all-time Christians. We never go on vacation. We never take time off from this responsibility. And I say that because I think many people think that they only serve Christ when they're at church or when they're doing some sort of ministry. But when they go home, that's like time off. They don't, they don't function in the name of Christ when they're at home or when they're at work, when they're in their car. That's alone time. They don't represent Christ, Paul's saying, in everything. 
you do. You represent Christ to the world. You are telling them what Christ is like. So understand the weight of this. In the verses that follow the rest of chapter 3 and 4, Paul delineates actually what this looks like in the lives of wives and husbands, children, slaves, and masters. Note especially what he says of slaves in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I mean, this is true of parents. It's true of children. It's true of masters. And it's true of slaves. You serve the Lord Christ. Function as his servant. Again, we no longer represent ourselves but Him because we're no longer seeking our own interests in this life but His. We have been bought with a price and therefore we're to glorify God in everything that we do. Again, recognize the weight of this. If you are a Christian, if you claim to follow Christ, you represent Christ to everybody else in this world to your wife, to your children, to your husband, your co-workers. If you fail to put off ungodly behaviors, such as what was mentioned here, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetous, wrath, anger, malice, obscene talk, and fail to put on virtuous behavior, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, Bearing with one another, loving one another. If you choose to live like everyone else in this world, what you are communicating to everyone else in this world is Christ is no different. That's what you're saying. Christ is no different from any, any other ungodly pagan because I represent Christ. And that's why Paul says, do everything in his name. A story is told about Alexander the Great who he had a young man that was brought before him who was guilty of cowardice in battle. It's something that was despised by the Greeks and Alexander in particular in particular. And he was brought before him. Alexander began by asking him what his name was. And kind of in a timid voice, the young man said, Alexander. To which Alexander responded, either change your conduct or change your name. By this time, such a, such a warning lands heavily upon us. Puritan William Gurnall wrote this. He says, don't say that you have royal blood in your veins and are born of God unless you can prove your pedigree by daring to be holy. So I'll read that again. Don't say that you have royal blood in your veins and are born of God unless you can prove by your pedigree by daring to be holy. In other words, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. This is what it means to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We can't just be casual Christians. 
There's no such thing. If your identity is found in Christ, you will then seek to live for him, not because you're trying to earn your salvation, but because your salvation has already been purchased. And now you live for him. He is your identity. And so we need to show in our life and choices that Christ is, in fact, our identity. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And as it's been his pattern, Paul, Paul, sorry, Paul follows his exhortation with a call to give thanks to God the Father through him. Again, as I pointed out at the beginning of the message, three times in three verses, Paul follows up his commands with a call to give thanks. Well, that's remarkable. I mean, could he, he could have repeated any of his commands, but why this command? And why not just say it once? What's Paul trying to communicate? I think, I think it's actually quite simple. Paul's trying to say, no matter what you do, in all that you do, do it with an attitude of thanksgiving. When you're teaching, be thankful. When you're singing, be thankful. When you're working for an unbelieving master, be thankful. Thankfulness is what should define us. And this is because thanksgiving is one of the primary ways, if not the primary way, we show what we worship. Thanksgiving is inextricably tied to worship. Where one's worth is found. Do you recall what Paul said about men in Romans chapter 1? Right? In that downward spiral of sin that, that he articulates beginning in verse 18. He says this in Romans one twenty one: For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The very beginning of their downward spiral was a failure to give thanks. Well, Why? Because after the fall, they were no longer God worshipers as much as they were now self worshipers. They wanted to be like God. And that same poisonous desire has infected every single one of Adam and Eve's children. All of us are born into the world with an inherent desire to want to exalt ourselves, to do what we want to live the way we want, to think what we think. We have an inherent assumption that we're right and we deserve a whole list of things, whether we have those things or not. We assume that we're worthy in and of ourselves to, to really have everything in this world, including worship. We want people to respect us, to admire us, to envy us. Men began to assume that they deserved everything. They were entitled to everything. Right? You don't give thanks for things that you're entitled to. You expect them. In some cases you demand them. And when you don't get those things that you think you deserve, that you're entitled to, what do you do? You get angry? Or you grumble? You complain? You whine? You try to manipulate other people so that you can get what you think you deserve? But you don't give thanks 
Thankfulness really is one of the primary expressions of worship unto God because it, it recognizes that we don't deserve anything. That we are the creature and not the creator. He deserves everything. We are His people, His servants, His slaves. A thankful person is, is thankful because they recognize they don't deserve anything and they, they're just happy to have mercy. They're just thankful that they're not destroyed. And notice how this was the very point that was illustrated in Jesus' healing of the ten lepers. We read it earlier today. On the way to Jerusalem... Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, And he fell on his face, an act of worship, at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan, it says. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. How did this man demonstrate his faith? That he was a believer? That he was a worshiper of Christ? He gave thanks. Because he he didn't assume that he was entitled to be healed. That he was entitled to a healthy body. He just wanted mercy. And when he got the mercy, he didn't get up and swagger off as if he'd done something in his own strength. No, he came back and he was just thankful. And Jesus says, your faith as manifested in your thankfulness is what's made you well. And likewise, we show where our worth, our identity is found in the same manner. By giving thanks in every circumstance. Because no matter what happens in our life, our lives are hidden in Christ. And nothing can snatch us out of His hand. And so no matter what happens, we can be thankful. And we demonstrate our worship, that our identity, our worth is in Him, now simply by giving thanks. And that's why Paul says three times, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. True worshipers demonstrate their faith by giving thanks. And I recognize there may be people here where that is not their experience. They don't feel thankful. And they feel maybe even enslaved to bitterness, anger. The very things that Paul tells us in this passage to put off. Malice. Lord, they don't feel at peace. Most of their relationships are, are filled with tension, anger, animosity, hostility. When they go to bed at night, they're full of anxiety and fear. The the stuff that's, that's listed here just looks like a list of burdens. 
challenges that need to be overcome, impossibilities. And I would say if that's you, recognize that that's that the problem is you. You can't achieve peace. You can't earn salvation. There's nothing you can do to gain any of these things. They are a gift. They can only be received. But in order to receive this gift, you have to acknowledge that you need it. You have to acknowledge that you need mercy. And so if that's you, that's what I'd encourage you to do. Cry out to Christ. Ask Him to change your heart, to cause you to be born again, and to give you the peace that He promised to give to His disciples. And to give you a love for His Word and a desire to obey you, obey Him and honor Him in everything that you do. Let's pray. Father, if there is anyone here who has yet to experience the peace that surpasses all understanding, the joy of forgiveness, a delight in Your Word, a desire to sing, a love for people. Lord, that You would help them to see that. You would help them to see that vacancy in their heart and then impart Your peace to them. Or if there is anybody here that does not know You, I pray that You would give them faith to believe. And Lord, as they believe, give us wisdom as the rest of the body to know how to come alongside them and to help them to endure in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. Lord, help us to see how we individually need to improve on all these various aspects. Lord, we don't want to be, again, Christians in name. We want to be Christians in deed. We want to live in the name of Christ in all that we do. And so help us to see what we need to do and give us the grace to do it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.